At this time, the children are dismissed for Children's Church. And I'll invite you all to find 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I know we just got finished praying, but if we could pray again, I think that would be good. Because we're about to receive God's word together. So let's pray. Father, you've given us many precious promises about your word. You've told us that it never goes forth without accomplishing your purposes. You've told us that it acts like a mirror to us in our souls and reveals things to us that otherwise we wouldn't see. You've told us that it's profitable for everything we need to grow as Christians So we come together to it now, and we just ask that you would make all those things happen in us. Let this not be an academic exercise where we learn some neat things about you or your word, but we want you to transform us. We want to walk out of here more molded to look like Christ than we were when we came in. So please speak to us now in a way that transforms us. We ask this with total confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. So in a few moments, we will receive the Lord's Supper together. Tiny cracker, tiny cup of juice. In any other context, that would be an insufficient snack. You, you have kids. Can you imagine if you were in the mall and they were whining because they're hungry and you gave them that little cracker and that little cup of juice? How long would that stave them off? Or if you came to the the counter here for breakfast after Sunday school and the Brocks had it this morning and they set out, you each get one little cracker and one little cup of juice. Now, we obviously know that the Lord's Supper is not about filling up our bellies. It's not about physical satisfaction. But when we come together as Christians... And we eat that little piece of bread and drink that little cup together in worship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It satisfies our souls. It fills us up spiritually. It is experiencing and renewing our close personal connection with Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. It's experiencing and renewing our joy and our salvation of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. God has saved us. He has transformed us. And when he, when he did that for you, when he does that for anyone, there's a change that happens in your heart. And this is true for every one of us in here who's a Christian. And it's true for anybody when they become a Christian. There's a fundamental change that happens in the heart. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we prepare for the table. And there's many different facets to this change, but we're just going to talk about this one. We're changed from selfishness to otherishness. We're changed from selfishness to otherishness. So yes, I did make up a word for this sermon. Um, Isaac helps me on Wednesdays and lays out the bulletin, and I heard him ask this Wednesday because I didn't have a title for my sermon. And he said, well, if you did have a title for your sermon, what would it be? 
And I don't even think I answered because I was thinking about something else. I never said anything. But now I realize that would be the title for the sermon, Otherishness. There was no English word that captured the idea of this passage, so I had to make this one up. And it's a good word, and I think that we should start legitimizing it and using it. Before we take the communion elements, I just want to remind you of this shift that if you're a Christian has happened in your heart. This is true of you. You have been transformed from selfish to otherish, from oriented toward the self, serving the self, to oriented toward others, serving others. And that's who you are. And I just want to remind you about that and encourage you to lean into that, your identity in Christ as otherish. Now, before we get into our, our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll begin at verse 23. Just a quick reminder of what's going on in the Corinthian church. Because their church was a lot different from our church or any modern American church. In America, you can drive past 10 churches that don't suit your preferences and then go to the one that fits like a glove, the one where everybody's just like you, the one where all the opinions are just like yours, and the one where you feel the most comfortable. In Corinth, they didn't have churches on every corner. The Christians were just together. And so Christians of all kinds of different backgrounds were together, rich and poor, young and old, conservative and liberal. And it's that liberal and conservative that I want to talk about right now to help you understand this passage. You had liberal Christians in the Corinthian church, and you had conservative Christians in the Corinthian church. And a hot topic issue for them was what to do about food that had been offered to idols. Now, that's not an issue for us, but as we've been talking about, the lessons we learn from this are really helpful to us. So the liberal Christians, they were just loving their liberty, their freedom in Christ. They were just loving the fact that in Jesus Christ, they were free. They didn't have to live by the Jewish laws, and they were freed from their sins, and they were just happy about that. And so they, when they saw meat that had been sacrificed to idols, like, who cares? It's delicious. Eat it. We're under no obligation to not eat it. Eat it up. It's great. And then you had the conservative Christians in the Corinthian church who said, well, wait, wait, wait. Christianity is basically Judaism 2.0. And we need to remember all the laws, all the 600-plus laws that the Jewish people have observed for centuries. So we absolutely shouldn't eat it. In fact, I'm offended that you're eating it. Not only am I not going to eat it, but you need to not eat it. And so there was conflict within the church. And Paul spends several chapters addressing this conflict over food offered to idols. And we're, we're landing the plane here in this passage. This is our last passage. And basically, up to this point, he has said... Liberal Christians, they're, you're basically right. We are free to eat this stuff, and it's fine. But there's something more important than our freedom. You need to love your conservative brothers and sisters who, at least in their conscience right now, feel that this is wrong. And don't just eat it and live it up without any concern for their feelings. Your brothers and sisters, think about their feelings. Also, they bring up a pretty good point. God's people have a tendency to fall into sin and idolatry. So do you really want to embrace practices that are so close to idolatry and sin? And then today, he ends with a really simple point. Our passage begins with a really simple point as he finishes his argument. 
That point is this. All is allowed for the Christian. All is allowed, but not all is helpful. Everything's allowed, but not everything is helpful. Let's look at that in verse 23. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Apparently, this was sort of a common saying in the Corinthian church. All things are lawful. He addressed that that motto or that slogan earlier in the book as well. Basically, it just means... I'm allowed to do anything I want. I'm in Christ. All my past sins, present sins, and future sins are completely wiped away and forgiven. So they're living life like Leonardo DiCaprio on the bow of the Titanic. I'm king of the world. I can do whatever I want to do. And what's interesting is Paul doesn't dispute it in his response to it. He doesn't say, no, you're not. You need to live according to the law. Instead, he shifts their focus. He says, well, that may be, depending on what you mean by it, maybe that's true, all things are lawful for you, but that's not a Christian way to think. Your whole way of thinking is off track. The question for Christians isn't what's allowed, what's legal for me, how much can I get away with? The question for Christians is what's helpful for other people? What will build other people up? That's the way a Christian thinks. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. Christians are marked not by selfishness, grabbing all they can get out of life for themselves. Christians are marked by otherishness, giving all you can give in life. He summarizes it really well in verse 24. Verse 24, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. The root problem in the Corinthian church was that everybody was just seeking their own good all the time. And so, of course, there was conflict. Some of you may know, last year, I took a conflict management class in seminary. This was the class where I took the assessment that confirmed for me what I already knew to be true. I am conflict averse. That's the technical term for it. We took a test, and it scored all of us students on a continuum of those who are just belligerent jerks who love conflict, get into it every chance they can, and then people who are conflict-averse. I scored a perfect 100% conflict-averse. I don't know what the other students scored. I I can't imagine that there were that many who are as conflict-averse as I am. So I took this whole class. Obviously, this was an area in which I needed to grow So I poured myself into it. We'd read probably a dozen books about conflict management from a Christian perspective. Three weekend intensives, so Friday night and all-day Saturday lecture classes on conflict management. Countless hours of online work and writing about conflict management. And then I get to this verse and realize this is all I needed to do is just read this one verse. Because ultimately, this, this, in all seriousness, summarizes everything that we learn in conflict management. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Ultimately, all conflict is, is two people being selfish. 
If just one of those two people can be otherish, the conflict diminishes by half. If both can be otherish, the conflict dissolves altogether. And so conflict management is just the art of trying to be and help others to be otherish rather than selfish. Easier said than done. Now, you might be thinking you're maybe in conflict right now or in relationships where there's a lot of conflicting dynamics, and you might be thinking, well, that's all well and good, but if I don't stand up for myself, I'm just going to get squashed. I know this other person's not going to be otherish, and they're just going to destroy me. So I want to be clear, that's not what this passage is about, but I want to be clear that I'm not advocating, and the Bible does not advocate, that we just allow injustice, or that we just enable abuse, or that we be irresponsible in any way. So I understand that there's a lot of nuances that come in human relationships. But the idea here, what is being conveyed is the reminder that if you're a Christian, this is who you are. When you were saved, you were fundamentally changed. You were fundamentally changed in orientation from selfward to outward, from selfish to otherish. And that's who you truly are in Christ. The more mature you become as a Christian, the more otherish you become. The mark of Christian maturity is otherishness. Which, of course, means the mark of Christian immaturity is selfishness. The Corinthians' big problem was they were spiritually immature, and that's why they had all these issues. They were such a troubled church. If you'll remember, this isn't going to be projected, but I'll just read it to you quickly. Back in chapter 3, Paul said, I cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. You're like babies. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? This was their issue. They were spiritually immature and they were acting spiritually like little babies. And so Paul has to spend all these chapters trying to hold their hand through these issues where if if they would just embrace who they are in Christ, they would be able to move forward through them. The immature... Christian is preoccupied with his rights. My rights. It's my right to be treated this way. It's my right to receive this. The mature Christian is preoccupied with the good of others. So we'll pause right here for for application. Just ask yourself, where are you on the scheme here, on the continuum? Selfish to otherish, immature to mature. Are you living fully in light of the fact that you're free from all that selfish nonsense? In Christ, you have it all. You've got it made, and you can live for the benefit of others. Or did you get stuck somewhere along the way in your progress? And is that something to pray through so that you can grow and mature? We want to grow and we want to mature. You know, often as Christians, we're just like children are. Children want the freedom of maturity. They want the cell phones. They want to stay up late. They want to eat whatever they want. They want to do whatever they want to do, just like mature adults. 
but they don't so often want the responsibilities that come with maturity. And as Christians, we're the same way. We want the peace, we want the joy of a seasoned, mature Christian. But do we want that chiseling away of self that has to come with it? Are we ready to let go of ourselves this radically to embrace maturity in Christ? Now, thinking about ourselves, how would this change any disputes that you may be in right now? If you could live perfectly in light of this, how might that change your relationships that you have right now? Or if you're not in any kind of conflict right now, think back to conflicts you've had. How, how might this, living perfectly in light of this, have changed the way you approach those things? from thinking about what's good for me to thinking about what's good for this individual or these people, from thinking about what are my rights to thinking about what's going to be helpful to this person in front of me, from thinking about my rights to thinking about what would build this person up in Christ the most. Wouldn't that just completely transform our approach to relationships if we could live perfectly in light of this? Think about the relationships in your life. Think about your family, people you work with, people you're close with. Think especially about your relationships with people among the church, because that's more specifically what this is about, our relationships as a church. Did you know, I'll bet you didn't know this, scientists have proven that almost 100% of cases of ICS come from selfish Christians. ICS is irritable church syndrome. (laughs) Almost 100% of irritable church syndrome comes from lingering selfishness among Christians. It's a very serious problem. I've been thinking a lot about church membership. This is going to be a uh, tangent for just a minute. I've been thinking about church membership. So there was a point in my life where I actually suspected that church membership wasn't biblical. Because you just don't see, you don't see that like specifically spelled out in scripture. But as I've grown, as I've studied God's word, and especially lately things he's been showing me, I've come to believe that church membership is just absolutely essential if we're going to grow up as Christians. Church membership is committing to one another. Without committing to one another in church membership. We'll always hold our relationships loosely, and if we annoy one another, well, no big deal. I'll just move down to this other church that looks better anyway. They've got more stuff going on. The commitment to one another is so central to being the church together, and that's what forces us to grow up spiritually. We have to deal with people who are different from us, ideally, within the church. And it's only through that process that we grow and we mature and become Christ-like. If we're only hanging out with people who are just like us all the time, we're not going to grow. In this way, a church, a committed church, the, the membership of the church is like a gym. Now, of course, the gym is an uncomfortable place to be for someone who's really out of shape. That's the whole point. It's through the discomfort that you grow, that you grow healthy. And so it is with the church. I've come to see church membership as a spiritual discipline at the same level of importance as Bible reading and prayer. 
Without it, you don't grow. Without being committed to a church family, you, you don't grow. There's just too many escape hatches. It's just too easy to bow out of difficult Christian relationships, and that's where God does so much of what he does to mature us. So how does this Christian otherishness work itself out for the Corinthians in their specific situation? Well, I want to read to you the following verses after what we've read so far, and I'm just going to read through it with virtually no comment because we've talked a lot about it already, and I'm eager to move toward communion. But here's Paul's specific advice to the Corinthians with their liberal and Christian, Christian uh, liberal and conservative Christians mixed together and fighting about what to do with food offered to idols. Here's his advice. Verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So in other words, go get your meat from the market. Don't even worry about where it came from. You don't have to quibble about it or ask the vendors and annoy everybody to death trying to figure out where it came from. Just buy the cut of meat and, and enjoy it. If an unbeliever invites you to their house, just eat whatever they put in front of you. You don't have to annoy them to death asking every detail about where it came from. Just you're free. You don't have to be that wound up tight about this. But, so there's the liberty side. There's the freedom. But if somebody tells you, you know, this was offered to a pagan idol, Paul says, then just don't eat it. He doesn't really elaborate on what might be behind this person informing the Christian that the meat had been offered. He just says, just don't eat it. You're free to eat it, but if somebody, if it seems like it's a big deal to somebody, if it seems like it might cause them some hurt to their conscience or some confusion about what Christianity is, then just, you're free to not eat it too. And then he sums up what he means here as he goes on in verse 31. This is a really famous verse. So even though you may not have studied all about idol meat, I bet you've heard this verse. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. Eat it, don't eat it. Take it home to eat it later. Feed it to your dog. Whatever you do, just so long as you're doing it to the glory of God. Set your heart to glorify God and you'll make the right decision. Give no offense to Jews, the conservatives in the church, or to Greeks, the liberals in the church, or to the church of God, God, just everybody. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And with that, Paul basically comes to a close with this whole issue. So what does any of this have to do with communion? The Lord's Supper. And we have one more verse. It's the first verse of chapter 11. Paul 
This is the period at the end of his argument. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We are to imitate Jesus Christ's otherness, otherishness. Jesus is the model of matureness, maturity. In Philippians, we see that Jesus didn't grasp his right to be counted equal with God. Instead, he emptied himself. He didn't seek his own good. Instead, he took the form of a servant. He didn't seek his own advantage, but became obedient to the point of death on a cross. We're recipients of Jesus's otherishness. And that's what the Lord's Supper reminds us of. And it transforms us from selfish to otherish. Tiny little elements, tiny little cracker, tiny little cup of juice, yet it is the experience and renewal of our close personal connection with Jesus' death on our behalf. As we eat the bread here in just a minute and drink the cup, remember who you are. You're a recipient of Jesus' radical, self-sacrificial otherishness. And now you're free to live just like he did. We design the way we go about communion so that we take our time, and there's plenty of time. I want you to use this time to pray through these things and meditate on, first off, what Jesus did for you on the cross. And just receive it afresh. Just Enjoy the fact that if you're in Christ, if you have turned from your sin to him and said, yes, I need your forgiveness, I need you to forgive me and pardon me and clean me up so that I can be okay with God, that you've received that, that you're right with God, just think about that. But then take it a step further this morning. Think about the relationships in your life. Just sort of run through them from the ones you spend the most time with on out. Think through the people in your life. How the fact that you're a Christian affects the way you relate to those people in terms of selfishness or otherishness. Let's pray together before we begin. Father, thank you for forgiving us. We are in this world just steeped in selfishness. We were born with it. Most of our most deeply ingrained habits have to do with self-orientation, selfishness. We will struggle with it until Christ returns and perfects us once and for all. But we thank you for reminding us that in our hearts now, because we have been changed through Christ, that's not who we are really. By receiving Jesus Christ's otherishness, we have been transformed to be otherish as well. So as we receive this bread and this cup, Lord, help us to fully participate in Jesus' body and blood. Remember that his righteousness is now our righteousness. His payment for sin is our payment for sin. His relationship with you as a son is now our relationship with you as sons. Thank you for that glorious fact. As we eat and drink together, Do the work in our hearts necessary so that we can walk out of here living more like Jesus, our model. It's in his name we pray. 
Amen.